1: The Astonishing Legends podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. In the event of a medical emergency, call a doctor or 911 immediately. Reliance on any information heard on Astonishing Legends is solely at your own risk. Additionally, please remember that Astonishing Legends is an entertainment podcast and should not be regarded as a news source. The information shared is based on personal experiences and represents the independent stories and opinions of guests of the show and in no way constitutes advice of any kind, medical or otherwise. You will find numerous links on COVID-19 in the show notes associated with the webpage for this episode at AstonishingLegends.com. Astonishing Legends would like to thank our listeners and Patreon supporters for their longtime support of the show. Tonight's episode is being released during what was initially a planned dark week and will be commercial-free.
2: Good evening, folks. What follows is a commercial-free offering from Astonishing Legends that we are presenting as a public service announcement. This is not regular programming for us. There is no mystery or paranormal intrigue tonight. We recognize the show as escapism for a lot of listeners, and you can rest assured that we're going to keep it that way. But we also felt a responsibility to share Scott's friend's story tonight. On March 5th, someone in our expanded personal circle began his own journey with the coronavirus or COVID-19. Being an extremely close friend of Scott's, we felt compelled to reach out to him to see if he would come on to talk about what his experience was like. We feel as he does that sharing his story with the world at large is not only important, it's essential in understanding the big picture of the current scenario or at least a snapshot of it, at what was this particular moment in time, late March 2020, especially in the United States and, most notably, in New York City.
3: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, And this is composer Andrew Sherman.
4: Encourage anyone you love who's old or frail or in some form of respiratory distress to stay home under quarantine. Don't have the grandkids over. Don't let them go shopping for groceries. They might not survive what I had.
3: Join us tonight for my interview with my friend Andrew about what contracting COVID-19 is really like.
2: We're back at our usual safe social distance. (laughs) That we are.
3: Tonight's show is one man's story about what it was like to contract the coronavirus and the reality of that experience unfolding in a system that was, at least at that time, unprepared for it. We won't be getting into the politics of how the pandemic is being handled. And as our opening disclaimers have hopefully made quite clear, we're not giving any advice, especially medical. We'll leave that to the CDC and the other powers that be. As for publishing this episode during a dark week, we wanted to make it clear that this is not a revenue-producing episode for us. And we also felt that it should be posted as soon as we could get it out the door so folks could hear it,
2: especially if it helped them take the idea of social distancing a little more seriously. It's something that we all know, of course, and I thought it might be just a good reminder to think of it here. Just a word from me about the difference between taking it seriously and being afraid. I kind of see it the same way about all potentially dangerous things. (laughs) I'd like to think that I'm not afraid of things out in the world that could harm you, like uh, I'm not afraid of bears or sharks, operating power tools, or even demons. But I do respect them. I respect their power to cause harm. I don't believe you need to be afraid of things like that, because all fear does is wear you down and dominate you, as... Frank Herbert says, it is the mind killer. Fear leads to panic, and panicking accomplishes nothing, as we've all seen for ourselves. You've just now got toilet paper and mac and cheese for the next three years, so congratulations on that. (laughs) So if you don't take things like this seriously, and you don't respect what they can do, they might show you what real fear feels like. <laughs> on another note, if you're looking for really fun and fascinating quarantine viewing, our good friends Seth Breedlove from Small Town Monsters and Shannon Lagro of her Into the Fray podcast have a terrific new documentary series ready for your binging pleasure. And personally, I found it was really truly a pleasure to binge. It's called On the Trail of UFOs and it's already available on Amazon and Vimeo on demand for streaming, or Blu-ray and DVDs are available over at smalltownmonsters.com. Check it out now. Yeah, that's an excellent series. I know a lot of
3: people are stuck at home. It's a perfect time to check it out. Seth and his team really consistently
2: produce great stuff, and you're really going to enjoy it. Yeah, one thing I will say uh, more about it is that it is entertaining and informative and captivating for those who don't know anything about the phenomenon of UFOs and the people involved with it, but also for the person who does know quite a bit about it. There's something for everyone in there. Well, on to tonight's episode. So Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be talking about with Andrew? And I just want to say, I met him once, really fabulous guy, really liked him a lot. And I'm so glad that he's pulled through this. And I'm curious to find out what that experience is like firsthand. So why don't you set up this episode about what we're going to hear and what we can expect? As most of you know,
3: I lived and worked in New York City for almost 10 years, and seven of those years, I worked at a company that used to be known as Fluid, and I was a television commercial editor there, and some music videos, but mostly TV commercials. That company has since expanded in a lot of different directions. They rebranded their editorial division as Bandit Edit. And uh, they also have a music division called Butter Music and Sound. They've added production, visual effects, post-production, and mixing, too. So they're just into everything. They're the original one-stop shop in New York. They're also now in Los Angeles and Berlin. But the office I used to work in, that, of course, that sounds like so much fun. That all happened after I left the Berlin (laughs) part. I would love to go to Berlin. Uh, But the office I used to work in is in the Soho section of Manhattan. That shop was one of my favorite places I've ever worked. I count everyone I met while working there among my closest friends to this day, and even though I don't really get to see them much anymore. In fact, it's where I met the composer of our theme that so many of you have as a ringtone, Judson Crane. But tonight's story is about one of the owners there, one of the founders of that company. His name is Andrew Sherman, and we've been friends for 17 years now. Andrew is a multi-award winning composer who, before co-founding the company with three other partners, toured in internationally with, among others, Mariah Carey and Dizzy Gillespie. And full disclosure, he composes the music for my wife's animated sitcom, Bless the Hearts, which is working on its second season now. They actually get to keep working because their animation, a lot of other shows in Los Angeles and movies have all had to shut down, but they all get to work remotely. So that's still happening. And that'll be on uh, in the uh, fall of this year. Anyway, Andrew is also in a band called the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout. (laughs) (laughs) When it's safe (laughs) to travel again, I'm telling you, I will do whatever it takes to watch them perform in New York. It is a blast. I'll meet you there. So when I found out a few weeks ago that Andrew was sick with pneumonia and was waiting on results for a coronavirus or a COVID-19 test, I was deeply concerned, not only for him, but for his family and friends and coworkers, most of whom I know and count as my own friends. As soon as I heard through the grapevine that he was ill, I began texting him. And in our brief exchanges, which took place while he was going through this, He told me how he was still awaiting test results for the coronavirus. Then within a few days, he texted me a picture of himself from the hospital on oxygen. You can actually see that picture uh, with our show notes and on our episode page for this on our website. I was getting information in bits and pieces directly from the source, whom I think it's safe to say was enveloped in COVID-19's fog of war, or war on his immune system anyway. It turns out he would later detail as best as he could everything that happened to him on his own Facebook page. And a few days ago on March 27th, I read through four lengthy posts that Andrew had written detailing everything he'd been through on his journey with COVID-19. And I was blown away by his story. He had posted it to get the word out for the sake of others and, and to let people know what he'd been through. Within about 10 minutes of finishing it, I contacted Forrest, who knows Andrew as well, as he just said, and I said, look, man, if you're up for this, I think we should have Drew on the show to share his story, and and Forrest agreed. So with that, I reached out to him, and he quickly replied, I'm totally down. (laughs) So what follows tonight is my interview with Andrew, whom you may recognize as the narrator of our 2019 Lost Christmas
2: Eve special. Yeah, right? Yeah. And wasn't he the narrator for our Archipelooza Yes, going way back.
3: For those of you just joining us, Arcapalooza was a celebratory couple episodes we did to celebrate our 100th episode, which is, can you believe that? That's over 70 episodes ago now. Um, he narrated that. That was a two-part series we did a while back. So yeah, that was him as well. He's got a great voice. I'm lucky to get him sometimes. He's done professional voiceover for years. Right. But we needed somebody that could really bring that narrator, besides Forrest, who obviously is, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm the thin voice control freak. Anyway, please remember that tonight's episode is subject to the disclaimers at the beginning and the end of this show. Our lawyers wanted to make that abundantly clear. So that's what we're doing. Also, we'll be back April 11th or 12th, depending on how soon we can get it posted. That's uh, the second weekend in April with our next new show which is a roundtable discussion with our good friends, Rich Haddam and Rob Christofferson. We talk about a bunch of different stuff. We've actually already recorded that. We got some fun ghost stories, a UFO story, and just uh, catching up in general with those guys and trying to uh, bring some levity into the current situation the world is in. So if you're looking for our regular content, we will be
2: back with that the second weekend in April. Ah, very good. Well, let's roll your interview.
3: Okay, so I want to welcome to the show one of my oldest and dearest friends, Andrew Sherman, somebody that I've known for, I think, going on almost 20 years now. I was trying to add it up, and I'm not really exactly sure when we met. I'm going to say 2003 or something like that. Andrew, welcome to the show. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah.
4: Hi, Scott. (laughs) Nice to see you. How are you? I'm good. I'm in New York, and you're in uh, North Carolina, yeah?
3: That's right. That's right. And uh, some of you guys may recognize his voice from the narrator position on our Christmas special that we did this year.
4: So yes, indeed. Yes, yes. indeed. It was a privilege.
3: <laughs> well, the reason we're having you on this is actually a commercial free show that we're doing and we more of a public service announcement, we thought was because you had this story that unfolded about your encounter with the Coronavirus. And I just thought it was a really compelling story. And I thought it might be a good thing to get out in front of our listeners so people could understand what it's like to have actually contracted this thing. And also at that snapshot in time that you did in New York City as things were still ramping up in terms of treatment and what to do and how to get tested yeah, and all that, right? Totally. That's that's exactly the scenario. So you did a series of Facebook posts where you talked about the experience of how it unfolded. And that goes all the way back to March 5th, which is a few weeks ago now. For our listeners, maybe, can you just start out with when you first started to realize that maybe something was going
4: on with you and, and what led up to that in the days prior? Well, the days prior is where the whole Facebook thing kind of starts. And I did that for a reason, which is uh, two things. I, I wrote all that stuff down real quick so that I wouldn't forget it, because, you know, I, I have a brain like a sieve at this point. But, um, the first, uh, sort of chapter of that whole thing really is leading up to the moment when I felt like I had symptoms. Yes. So that's four days, five days prior to me having symptoms. My wife had a day worth of sort of regular flu like symptoms. Her, her temperature got up around a hundred, but it wasn't severe and it didn't last long. And, uh, I was working from home that day, I think. So I was around her quite a bit that day. And uh, we had a friend coming over for dinner that we decided to cancel on so that, you know, if she had the coronavirus, which we didn't, you know, nobody thought that was true. But then he wouldn't get sick. And uh, so that's why not. You know why not. So I was going to go out and meet him that night uh, on the Lower East Side, which I did went to a bar and we hung out, fairly crowded bar. And then we went to another bar uh, to hear a friend Ethan play with his organ trio. And uh, that bar was not that full, but we hung out there until about 1130 or so. And then all, all came home. I came home in an Uber that night, I think. And then the next day my wife felt fine and I was fine. So we proceeded to keep our social calendar and engagements going. On March 5th, when this was unfolding,
3: the world was and even new york was quite a different place it wasn't the all the red flags hadn't been raised no, up just yet
4: no and it was yeah exactly and there was no quarantine there was no nothing like that but uh people were washing their hands that's right that's what it was it was like wash your hands that was all the the real the information that was out there was just wash your hands a lot so everybody had dry hands at that point from washing them all the time right but, sure but that was it, and uh, other than that, we proceeded as usual. I mean, we were at the Steak Palm Steakhouse on Friday night, yeah, and then went to karaoke after that. So you know, life as normal.
3: Yeah, New York life, which I miss a great deal, actually.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> so your wife was sick for just like a day, but the next day she felt better. You
4: guys mm-hmm. just really didn't think a whole lot of it at that time, correct? And and uh, later on, I believe my son. And daughter each had a day worth of symptoms themselves, but they weren't anything really serious. Milo had a fever a little bit and Maisie had some sniffles. That was about it. That was later on after I had sort of developed symptoms. But yeah, nobody in my house got hit very hard other than me. And you
3: don't know necessarily if they were ever positive. Actually, you don't necessarily know for sure that that's connected, right?
4: They never had a positive test, although they lived without me wearing a mask under the same roof with me and sometimes in the same bed because our son still comes into bed with us. So, like, that went on for a week before I had a test. So, right. It's fairly certain that, that that's what it was. And, and, and we're also kind of thinking that I got it from her, you know, that's the most logical explanation. Although it's New York City, there's a lot of public transportation. I ride the subway every day to and from and uh, anywhere I'm going, I'm on the subway. So at
3: this point, then you're doing okay for several days, but then something starts to change for you and you start feeling
4: bad, right? Yes, we live life as normal uh, for that entire weekend. And then Monday after that, you know, Thursday, when Jody felt sick, I began to develop symptoms of what I can only say is the flu. You know, I had a fever. I, had, I was a little dizzy. My eyes hurt to look left and right. You know that feeling? Yes, that weird, absolutely. weird, why does that happen? I don't know. The, the fever went up pretty quick. I think day, on Tuesday, I believe it had hit 103, but began to back down on Wednesday. So there was a little sort of pre-arc to the arc. This was really a two-stage sickness for me. So from the
3: time that you had the onset of symptoms to
4: where you had this fever, that
3: was pretty quick. That was just a day, really?
4: Yeah. Well, this one of the symptoms that I noticed at first was a fever. So right. I, had, I had a fever of, a, okay. you know, 100-ish. I think it went to 101.8 the first day, which is Monday. So by the night, you know, that day, I was hitting 101.8. I think it might have gone down a little bit because I, I guess, you know, my wife says that your fever goes down in the morning, but um, it went down a little. And then by the end of the day on Tuesday, I hit 103. And how long did that continue? What was the phase that took
3: you from being at home with a fever to the hospital?
4: Well, that was a whole week later. A whole week. From that, yes. So from the time when my fever spiked, which was on Tuesday, it went back down again. And most of my symptoms kind of waned at that point to the point where I was basically felt like I was just getting over the flu. And on Friday, uh, in the morning, I believe it was, I felt like, oh, I might be getting over this thing because uh, I had never had uh, the cough that they claimed was a key signifier of of the disease. And, uh, you know, had in the back of my mind, there was a the possibility that this was not coronavirus or a coronavirus, I should say. COVID-19 is what they call it. But um, the day that I thought I should go get a test was Saturday. And that was day six of my party with uh, coronavirus. Um, so up to that point, I'd only had flu-like symptoms. But on that Saturday, I began to have pneumonia-like symptoms. So I started having a harder time breathing. And I thought at the time that I should go get tested because if that was it, then I really, really needed to take this mask and sequestration thing seriously and all that. And that was Saturday. So I went into the local, uh, walk-in clinic, which was the best my doctor could tell me to do, because he mentioned one place in particular that he knew that he'd heard was working on having tests in stock. And, uh, that place was not far from the walk-in clinic that I went into and it was just another walk-in clinic. So I said, okay, well, I don't, I should just go to my regular one. And, uh, I went to the regular one and they were less than hospitable that day. Um, they had some complications go on outside of me but they really didn't want to test me. And they said, you know, why did your doctor send you here? We don't do this. We don't test for this. You know, they had forms scattered around the office of, you know, on clipboards that were just basically two questions. And the first question was, have you been around anyone with confirmed COVID-19 infection? And I could tell that that was the questionnaire, whether they were going to test you or not. And the second question was, have you been to an affected country? And so my split second and sort of, uh, I don't feel bad about it at all. Decision to lie about that was what got me the test. I said I'd been at a fashion show in Milan the week before, (laughs) Um, which honestly, I had been on a flight the week before, you know, just before this, I'd been in California. And before that, I'd been in uh, Germany this year and New Orleans. So uh, I picked Milan out of a hat you know? Yeah. And that seemed to satisfy. So they, they, at first they had to test me for the flu to make sure it wasn't just the flu. They had a flu test that they could give me that would give results in 10 minutes. And so I did that test and, uh, that was negative. So then the doctor sort of begrudgingly gave me this other test and it was, you know, it was a little painful to have him jam that swab, like not just in your nose, but like all the way back to your mucous membrane and rub it around. That's what it was. And so that test was uh, painful, and eventually uh, they screwed it up, so I got no results from that test anyway. Oh, so that whole man. whole day was a waste of time. But I left there believing that I would have results from that test in five to seven days, which was as long as they could guarantee because they had to ship the test across the country to some lab in Southern California that had to then do the test and then ship back. the was res- whatever. I don't know why. Seven, seven days seems ridiculous.
3: Yeah. I was texting you at this point, and this is the interesting thing, which I, I talked about a little bit in the uh, opening of the show, but – you know, I heard through the grapevine, through mutual friends, that you were going through this, and I don't really, I'm not very religious about my Facebook newsfeed, so I had no idea that you had even made any postings on there. We were just texting a little bit, and I was, I felt so, uh, i you know, just as a friend, I felt out of control, unable to help you, and I, I wanted to ask you all <laughs> these questions, but not bother you, because I can only imagine what you were going through, And I but I remember when you said, yeah, I'm waiting
4: on the test results, and I was just like, ah,
3: five days, six days, it's like crazy.
4: Yeah it was crazy. And, uh, at this point I hadn't written anything on Facebook. I, I didn't write okay. anything on Facebook till I got back from the hospital. Okay. So I was in t- um, So I was talking to you early on, I guess. Yes. In the- you and I were, you and I were texting before I decided to write it all down. Yeah. But, um, and that Sunday, I just remember the breathing getting worse, you know, over time. And I, this weekend, yeah, that Sunday I must have, I, I'm not looking at my diary at this point, but, uh, at that point, I think I had a, uh, fairly uneventful, but symptom-filled day. Glad that I'd gotten the test, and that was basically it. And on Monday, they in the morning on Monday, they called me and said they botched the test. So they told me to come back in, and they give it to me again. And I was like, oh, okay. But at that point, I, I had enough breathing difficulty that while I was there, they said, you should get a chest X-ray. And I agreed with them and they said their chest x-ray machine was broken. So I had to go to another city MD to get that. But they did the test again for me fairly rapidly at the place and then called me the next morning with the results. So there is a way to get a result for a coronavirus test in about under 24 hours because they did. But they called me and, and told me it was positive and that I had pneumonia from the x-rays.
3: Right. And this was the first thing that I heard was that you were had been diagnosed with pneumonia. That was when I was yes. like, wait, what? I can't even remember. That was I told that would that. have
4: been Monday. So that Monday I would have had that diagnosis, but not the positive coronavirus diagnosis. Okay. So which is probably why I said I'm waiting on the thing. So the day after I got the positive chest x-ray, and then they gave me penicillin basically or and some kind of antibacterial drug. And previously the week before I had called the doctor just to see if I should get tested on a Tuesday and they would prescribed Tamiflu over the phone. So I had basically taken two courses of medication that wasn't going to do me any good because bacterial pneumonia and viral pneumonia are two totally different things. Right, Mine was viral and that result didn't come until the day after I got the pneumonia diagnosis. So obviously now we're looking at the coronavirus and now I feel like, okay, I've got it. So now I'm really in bed and I'm really wearing the mask and then I'm getting, I, and the breathing's getting really bad at this point. And, uh, Wednesday was bad. A lot of, you know, heaving and sort of half breathing and talking myself through self-hypnotizing my, my breathing so that I, I don't feel, cause it feels like you're drowning when you can't breathe in, you know? Yeah. So that's what I was doing was sort of talking myself. out. as like, breathe in, just, just breathe faster you know cuz you can't breathe in as much so just breathe more right is what I what I was doing oh also <laughs> i should mention this because this is turning into an actual symptom that nobody knew about that we didn't know about from china so much i lost my taste buds and my sense of smell so that everything that i tasted or smelled smelled like sort of rotten fruit Really? Yeah. So starting that started right around Monday, maybe Sunday before when I had the bogus test, I had an extreme aversion to eating anything solid, just because it was repulsive. <laughs> frankly, uh, you know, it's yeah. smelled it smelled bad and tasted bad. So um, you know, over the course of of these two weeks, I lost sixteen pounds. So. That's how that happened. But yeah, it was an odd symptom to have. And a lot of people are beginning to sort of co identify with that symptom. There's a lot of talk around that being one of the big indicators, actually.
3: How would you characterize your health going into this?
4: Pretty healthy. I mean, I I hadn't had any kind of a flu or anything like that going into it. You know, in Germany, I might have had a few beers. I might, you know, I might have been hanging out and having a drink every night. That's a typical (laughs) New York thing. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) when you take those tests and like, Cosmopolitan, or or when you walk into your doctor's office, you have to fill that form out, and like the number of drinks I actually yeah. <laughs> have is like the last possible answer. That's usually me. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not immune to having a a beverage, but not to any extreme. When, and I can't remember. Are you a, a former smoker as well, or not? Yeah, Jody and I quit smoking when I was when we were thirty. I was thirty seven. She was thirty five. Okay. I've had a few now and then, yeah. usually coupled with the drinking. But I feel like I'd seen you have a cigarette every now and then oh but yeah not yeah, very yeah. often i've never gone back to it never yeah. you know i don't buy packs of cigarettes but um if i'm at a party or people are smoking i might have a cigarette but yeah. um i'm lucky because i i didn't get that or i broke that addiction i guess yeah yeah so i wasn't under any abnormal stuff i guess on friday after jody was sick we went out and had a you know rip roarious time on saturday we also went out had a rip roarious time and i was out with that guy on Thursday. So I was out three nights in a row. Yeah. Uh, I was driving on Saturday. So I didn't have that much to drink. But Sunday was definitely like a let's pass out kind of day. Yeah. And then take the kids, you know, probably around noon, we left the house and did some stuff. But, and that's all before I got sick.
3: As this is unfolding, you're coming to realization you're having to cancel gigs. You had some rehearsals. You were supposed to go yep. do all this stuff. You're starting to back out of it, I guess.
4: What? Once- well, that was the first week before I had the diagnosis when I thought, okay, well, I probably don't have the coronavirus, but I certainly don't want to give the entire band the coronavirus and I'm about to spend three hours in a room with these guys so I should probably not do that.
3: yeah, that's yeah. the way
4: that went down but okay. uh, that was a week before I got the diagnosis.
3: The breathing problems what did that what did that feel like
4: to you? well i I describe it uh, as feeling like you're drowning because you can breathe out but you can't breathe in or you can't breathe in all the way. It starts to hurt about a third of the way to your normal, like lung capacity, it starts to hurt and you avoid that pain because the pain makes you cough and the cough hurts because you still have the headache and the aches and stuff, you know, that's all back now. So coughing as a result of breathing in is the worst one you could have because it's uncontrollable and you have to like, let it run its course, which is uh, painful. So you're just trying to breathe easy basically stay on your back because if you don't have to expend energy, you're not going to need more oxygen for your blood. It's And it's an oxygen in your blood situation, right? So okay. at this point, on uh, Tuesday, I get the diagnosis. On Wednesday, I'm getting worse and worse. And on Thursday, and all the time not eating, of course, drinking a lot of fluids, but not eating anything. And uh, on Thursday uh, was the day we decided to go to the hospital. And Thursday, I woke up and I couldn't really – answer questions my wife was asking i was sort of just thinking about them for too long to even answer them at that point and that's a symptom i think of oxygen deprivation also but um and that night before i had barely slept I, it was a lot of coughing and a lot of uh pneumonia basically severe pneumonia not not as severe as some people i never had to be on a respirator but it was bad so Thursday, I was um, sort of unresponsive to my wife's questioning, at which point she said, we've got to get you to a hospital because this is getting bad enough that you're not functioning. Um, so we got in an Uber, packed a bag, and uh, went to the hospital, which is a place I don't like going because that's where all the sick people are.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what do you think? Are you thinking about when you're getting in the Uber with this Uber driver is going to be exposed to this or like, how are you feeling? Well, about
4: I've that? got a mask on at this point and I've got my hands sort of under my arms like this. Uh-huh. I just washed them, but I also, I think I just took a shower immediately before we went to the hospital. Right. But what's that? Have those gloves, have oh, that's my wife. I had, I had surgical gloves on. Oh, I right. That. Yeah. Yeah. My downstairs neighbor had furnished me, uh, thankfully with a N95 mask of which he had three or four in his house for his family. And, uh, he gave me a pair of surgical gloves. So, okay. uh, his, his father is a surgeon also, and he's in Birmingham. Okay. Who, okay, Pretty, I who's actually fairly active in this whole coronavirus situation yeah he's a very close friend of is it fauci fauci is uh, one of his childhood friends they they were roommates so okay they're they're of similar uh medical backgrounds yeah so then the hospital is kind of like chapter two of the whole thing yeah. so uh, I, mean, I mean really chapter two for me is pneumonia and yeah. that started the weekend before the hospital but uh march 18th yeah So March 18th, the day that we'll live in infamy, uh, (laughs) that's the day that we got to the hospital, and we we sort of went towards the front door, and then I said, no, I think we're supposed to go to the emergency room, so we walked down there. There were no signs or anything, but uh, we went down, and this is, yeah, a week before all the beds in the ICUs in New York city are filled. This but, is just uh, 12 this,
3: days ago from now that would the day we're yeah. recording this anyway.
4: Yeah. So we walk down, we go to the emergency room, we, we walk in, we say I'm positive. They sort of normally kind of just hand us a form, you know, really? okay, fill this out kind of deal. And then we sat there for maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then they took me around the corner to another area, which is sort of the foyer of the ICU. And they, uh, and Jody couldn't go there. So that was our our saying goodbye right there. And then I waited to go into the ICU for another half hour, probably, as they were sort of wheeling people in and people, because it's an emergency room, right? It's yeah. not just for coronavirus at this point, right. although now I believe it actually is just for coronavirus. But back then, people were still, you know, coming in from whatever. Just for our listeners, you you live in Brooklyn, right? I live in Brooklyn, but this is in Manhattan. So the the uh, hospital I went to is okay. NYU Langone on Thirty Third and First. Yeah, and uh, okay, they were absolutely as good as any other hospital that I could have gone to, <laughs> no better or worse. I swear, you know, yeah, um, yeah. As as everyone is just really trying to get the hang of the thing at the time. So yeah, I I uh, waited there and watched a couple people go in ahead of me that looked like they were worse off than I was. And finally, they sort of walked me in. I had my wheel bag, which I had luckily packed, you know, before I, I left the house because I had a feeling I'd be staying overnight. They brought me in the ICU and sort of stuck me on a bed in kind of like a hall. It wasn't like a private area or anything like that, but I was sort of there for about an hour and a half during which time, once a nurse came by and took my vitals and some blood and put one of those things that they're going to put an IV in later, Yeah, but they didn't do it there. Okay, And then a uh, doctor uh, came and, and uh, at a certain point, maybe two and a half hours after I got there and said, okay, I think we're going to keep you overnight. And by that time they had me move to another bed that actually was in the corner that had one of those pull around, you know, curtain things.
3: What's the environment and the vibe like at the hospital at this point? you know,
4: it wasn't like people running around going, Stat, stat you know, it was just it looked like a normal, albeit crowded day in the ICU to me. I I had actually been in an ICU in the last six months because my mother on a visit fell and hit her head on the on the concrete. Oh no. And so she was afraid she might have a concussion. So we, we, we went to the emergency room. So I'd been in an ICU and this kinda looked just like that. Just maybe a couple extra folks in there and, you know, fully staffed. Sure. It was a Thursday evening so the weekend nuttiness hadn't started but all in all I think I sat in the ICU in either the one bed or the other bed for about with the mask on for about 3 hours before any in my mind progress was made where they they actually got me put me in a wheelchair and took me upstairs to a private room which was luxurious to say the least compared to the ICU this is where they put you The day after you have the child and you need a warm, fuzzy room to recover in and there's there's a TV on the wall the size of a smart car and there's like a, you know, it's massive and there's a iPad you can control everything in the room from and there's, you know.
3: And you don't have any idea. Why they sent you there. Terms- I, I have
4: no idea why I'm in this room. Yeah. I basically just sort of didn't ask any questions because I didn't want to blow it. Yeah. But yeah, it's a very nice room compared to the ICU. It was, you know, heaven and earth. And I was in that room for two days that night, which because when I checked in to the hospital, it was around three o'clock and uh, I didn't hit that room till about seven so once I was in that room, they put oxygen in my nose and I fell asleep like that. Okay. I think I was asleep for about 45 minutes or so, at which point my wife had been frantically texting me because there was no way she could contact me other than texting because yeah. she didn't know where I was or what was going on. So I uh, responded. I said, I got, got into a private room, fell asleep. Sorry. Something like that. I have, I have my texts here. There woefully inadequate for the situation, but, um, I'm also still having trouble breathing and being and thinking you know, right? woozy and thinking weird. Yeah. I'm, I'm down at about 86% oxygen in your blood and you're supposed to have above 92 or they're supposed to be freaking out, you know? Yeah. So, um, I've been texting her in the ICU. So I said, I, at one point actually at six 20, I said, I think I should come home And she says, oh, honey, that sucks. No, you really need to be seen. Seriously, please wait until they can at least give you some of the necessary meds, please. The med is, and at this point, Trump or somebody has said hydroxychloroquine is a good idea. So she's got that on her list of things I should get. And I said, sorry, made it into private room. And this is like, that was at 6.54. And then 35 minutes later, I I text her say, sorry, made it into private room with oxygen, fell asleep. I think they're keeping me here. She said, okay, so glad you're getting oxygen. Do you feel better? We miss you and love you. Blah, blah, blah. 6.30. That's 7.30 at night. I don't get back to her until uh, it was later. It was Friday around 11:30 oh, a.m. Wow! So yeah, so yeah. it was about yeah. I mean, I was just I was sleeping pretty hard, but uh, and they had me on an IV drip too of antiviral and antibacterial. So they went from one to the other just to sort of double whammy, I guess. But uh, early Friday morning, they woke me up at like 5 a.m. to give me yet another coronavirus test. So uh, which eventually did come back positive. This is your second or third test. This is my third test. They botched the first one. The second one came back positive, which I informed them of coming into the hospital. Right. But it was one of those that was not technically approved by the CDC. So then this hospital had to do another one.
3: Not technically approved. And this, I guess, has to do with how they're trying to classify everything, including your treatment and what priority you
4: are. I guess. I don't know why a test would be issued to a medical establishment in an unapproved form other than they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to figure things out. Right. Right, So that test I got at city MD was not the test that the hospital wanted to see. So they did another one and uh, you know, this really and unpleasant, was,
3: deep reaching all the way up between yeah, your eyeballs a, kind of Actually,
4: thing. the one in the hospital, they didn't have to go in as deep, which it wasn't as uncomfortable. Oh, okay. Which was interesting. So, uh, and I thought, wow, why? Yeah. And so that was Friday morning, very early. And I think I slept in after that because it's sort of overnight, it wasn't a solid good night of sleep. You know, it was, you know, I had oxygen tube on my face and the IV drips going in and stuff. Uh, and I, I, I don't remember getting a great night's sleep. But uh, all that stuff was done by like five six a.m. when they did the final coronavirus test. and I think I passed out at that point, which is my only excuse for not texting my wife until eleven thirty in the morning. And she but, can't visit you, right? She's not allowed to visit. <laughs> she can't call. There's nobody. Nobody to check can in visit. With. Right? There's no nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Got a nurse said she, to call she said she called the hospital a number of times and finally got a nurse that uh they didn't know where i was or what was happening. didn't even know so. where you were
3: <laughs> no. oh
4: my no. god and this is early no. this is before the you know what hit the fan with this this stuff. is before the big uh you know i think the dow is actually still above 22 at this yeah. point um yeah. and basically all day friday after i wake up i did talk to uh jody and had her uh Some friends of mine, actually, the friends we went to that karaoke night with, they smuggled me in some protein bars and some books and some other stuff. They had a nurse come and get the bag and bring it up to me. And Oh, that's good. uh, During this time is when I realized how truly horrifying hospital food is. (laughs) I guess my first real meal meal came on... uh, on friday in the at lunch time i guess maybe yeah and it was a chicken breast yeah and somehow it was gray and there was a mashed potato pile which i believe had the consistency of like coconut oil you know when it's in the jar when yeah. you pull it out like that kind of thing yeah and my taste buds aren't great at this point to begin with yeah but trying to eat this food and actually forcing myself to eat this food a couple of times, I think is what I credit with bringing my taste buds back to life because your taste buds in general are meant to tell you what's safe to eat. Yeah. So they're defensive really. Yeah. They're not there to give you pleasure. You're not, that's a byproduct of our culinary, you know, fun. But the real reason that you have taste buds is to keep you from eating something that will kill you. Yeah. And I think that, Hospital food shocked my taste buds back into existence and, and normal functionality <laughs> by driving them to their most primal instinct, which is to keep me from dying. Yeah, and saying, "Don't eat that; it will kill you." And it was it was uh, mind boggling how badly they could make some food taste in the hospital. It was just unbelievable. And ironically, I was wheeled in a wheelchair because I didn't stay in this room past Saturday, but I was wheeled in a wheelchair past the kitchen three times in the bowels of the hospital, you know, down there. And it's just what you'd imagine. It's just a, it's a massive kitchen of stainless steel appliances and a lot of people with hairnets and just like trying to keep up, you know? Yeah.
3: Why are you getting wheeled all over the place? Where are they taking you?
4: Well, they wheeled me the first night they wheeled me through the belly of the hospital, basically to this room to begin with. Then on Saturday was the day they came in and said, "Okay, you've tested positive. We're going to move you to a different room now." And they had to move me from the lovely room that I had, and as they brought me out of the the room in the wheelchair, I looked over and there's another guy over there with a, you know, with a hat, and he's uh soon I will realize he's going to be my roommate. But at that point we're both sitting in the hall going, "Hey, you know, hey." Yeah. The classic New York greeting. "How you doing?" "All right, you know, hey." Uh and then we're <laughs> And then we get wheeled around down into the bowels of the hospital together, you know, him behind me, and we're, we're rolling a were you, very familiar. Were you, sort you guys of route. holding hands? On not the at all at this point. No, no. <laughs> I'm kidding, we, I'm were, we were not expecting to know each other very long at that point. Yeah. And we kept going through and past the kitchen again, but took a, took a jog left and into a different elevator. And uh, this one took us up into. Probably what is the last wing of the hospital to ever be renovated. Like it will never, it hasn't been and may not ever be kind of, they might just blow it down. But it's that wing where like it's gray, you know, there are multiple beds per room. The view is nice straight up the East River, but it's fallen apart. The, The air conditioning in there is actually on the wall on the air conditioning unit itself, you know, there's yes. no thermostat, yeah. it's just, it's just a knob, yeah. cold, hot, that kind of thing. Yeah. Which is great for, you know, roommate situation. <laughs> but, um, we actually found out that we are both in the first hour or so go figure in New York, but we're both musicians. We're both, uh, he's semi-famous in his community. Uh-huh. I'm not famous, but I've played with famous people and we know a lot of the same people. And like, we're, we're pretty fast, uh, roommates as it were. Yeah. But uh, I could tell he'd had it worse than me. He'd had a harder breathing time. I'm not sure if he was on a respirator. I didn't ask him, but he looked like he might have been, you know, in that situation for a little while. And he had had some more severe stuff go on than I did. But we were both at this sort of same stage now, in the process, I think he'd been in the hospital a day longer than me. Maybe is he uh, similar in age to you, or older or younger than you, or younger, maybe eight years. I think he's Hasidic and uh, was a sort of a singer in a famous band in the late 90s that kind of uh, you know bucked the system a little bit and did some acapella, groovy Jewish melody stuff. Uh, oh, was, cool. This guy's name is uh, Ellie Schwebel, uh-huh. and uh, we, we, we at the end of it all, we were calling each other Stable Schwebel <laughs> and uh, Squirming Sherman. Let's talk about the experience of your symptoms now. I mean,
3: once they've identified, and this is a question I've had in general, beyond metrics and being able to tell the world what's happening with the virus, what is the point to saying whether or not you're positive with it if there's no treatment for it, other than just to keep you away from other
4: people so you don't spread it? Or I think you automatically take it more seriously. Yeah. Honestly. And... uh I think information is key when you're, you know, when you can't breathe. Sure. You want to know why. Yeah. And you want to know why for sure. <laughs> and uh the whole idea with I think I started the whole Facebook post with I never thought I was going to die. I never felt like I was going to die. I did feel horrible and I, you know, I I did know at a certain point that I needed to go to the hospital, but I didn't feel like this was going to be my last breath ever, you know. I never had that feeling and some people have had that feeling at this point. Thousands of them, but uh, knowing helps you know that you are to take it seriously in uh, quarantining yourself as well. So you know what's wrong with you, and you also know that you are a threat. To right. other people. Right. And that allows you to alter your behavior. Any problems you've been having with altering your behavior up to that point, vanish. Because you know that you have it, and you know that you should stay away from old people for sure, and you should stay away from, uh, uh, I should say seniors or whatever, but uh, do all the things that are required. Do you mind sharing your age yep. with our audience? I'm 52. Okay. So I'm on the cusp of you know the demographic that this really, really hurts. But I'm I'm not all the way there.
3: On your Facebook posting, you had described uh, feeling better for a bit, and like you decided to try and take a shower, and then it wound up being a debilitating
4: experience? Well, that was in the first room. That was in the deluxe room. Oh, okay. That was before uh, you even moved. Okay. There was not a shower in the other room. Uh, Yeah. It was probably a shared shower in the hallway or something like that. Yeah, Right. But yeah, I, I did take a shower in that room, and the process of doing it left me very, very winded, and I wound up collapsing on the bed after that for another hour or so. Yeah, I skipped the day on the old shower there, so that's that was a, a good thing to do at that point.
3: Again, you said you never felt like you were going to die, but yeah. I feel like for me, I might have had a, certainly a, a, at least a mild anxiety attack about being one of the people that has come down with this thing that's wreaking havoc across the country. Did you ever have any of those come to Jesus kind of moments about this is happening to me? I'm part of this now.
4: I don't think I allowed myself that. I had a, I had a, like a little counseling session with a friend of mine a week after getting home uh, that was sort of trying to get to the center of what that feeling might have been for me, but I'm not sure we got there. I didn't really panic because I knew that way more people get the virus than die from it. So... To some accounts, 80% of people are going to get it. You know, that's the worst case scenario. I didn't think my odds were that bad. How many days were you on oxygen? I was on oxygen for three days. So I was on oxygen from, uh, well, yeah, two and a half. I was on oxygen from the evening that I got into that room, which was Thursday evening through Sunday afternoon at noon.
3: What other treatments were they giving you? Yeah, besides the oxygen, I, I had
4: none. I, I had just the the two IV drips when I checked in, and the oxygen because really all they're measuring at that point, and all they're able to do is just sort of maintain. They're looking at your pneumonia symptoms because that's what it is—is is you have pneumonia now, and it's viral. So it's really your blood oxygen level that they watch. And they release you when it's stable above 92 for, you know, six hours. So that's about how long it was before I got out on Sunday morning was, I, you know, I woke up and I took the thing out of my nose after I, you know, woke up around eight o'clock and I left the hospital around 2, 2.30.
3: During the time in the hospital, did you feel like the situation at the hospital was devolving at all in terms of them getting overwhelmed or did that did that come after you got out or?
4: Yeah, I didn't see any sign of incompetence. That was not what was going on. I think I saw over time I saw fatigue and I saw people sort of on a learning curve that was pretty steep like uh they changed their procedure or or everyone that came into my room when I was in that private room left it differently like some of them washed their hands before leaving some of them did not some of them took off their gloves as they were leaving some did not And, uh, that first room I was in, it seemed to me and a janitor came in without a mask, you know, it's a whole thing. But, uh, that first room seemed to me the time when, when, you know, the news was really hitting and the people were starting to talk sequestration. They were shutting the bars down. They were doing all the stuff at that point. I think that's about when that was hitting, like right around Thursday, Friday, Cuomo was giving his fireside chats every day. And, uh. That yeah. was changing things sort of day by day. Yeah, once I was in the uh, the more banged up room with Ellie, the people there seemed to get a lot more um, knowledgeable and more like used to it. So I think the wing I was in wasn't really designed for the coronavirus outbreak to begin with. And then once they put me in the other one, It was like, yeah, okay, well, this is, you know, and a doctor came in and gave me in five minutes, gave me a real quick, easy rundown of what was going to happen over the next 24 hours, which was basically, we're going to observe your blood oxygen levels. If they get to this point and they're stable, we're going to let you go home. That was it. That's when I found out that my hospital coronavirus test was positive, was that Saturday when they moved me. And there was no talk for
3: you of uh, having to go onto a ventilator at any point. I never
4: was assigned a respirator, no. Um, okay. I think the worst day of my breathing actually was the day that I went in the into the hospital, that we decided to go to the hospital. That was the day my breathing was the worst.
3: So in hindsight, in terms of how you dealt with the onset of it and getting yourself to the hospital and all of that, and even though it seems like that's a moving target about how, what they want people to do from day to day, what's your message for People at large and just understanding the point at which you might be spreading it and not knowing it and that sort of thing.
4: How do you feel about how that all played out for you? Well, I was in the, in the early days, back in the, you know, the art, my information was different than what eventually came to pass. So I was not ever told to sequester myself, you know, until I was calling the doctor and saying, I think I have these symptoms and stuff. And he's like, well, you should stay home. But um, I think that, you know, there was no, Closing of establishments and only essential personnel, and none of that was happening when I was you know developing symptoms, so my kids were still in school that whole week you know, and going to school. My daughter was going to school and coming home to be with Corona daddy and going back to school again for that whole week. Thankfully, we haven't yeah. heard of any you know cases coming out of that. Was
3: there a red alert for everybody who know like all of your kids? friends and parent like did the word get out and everyone at a
4: certain point we had to broadcast that they had already closed the school because i hadn't tested positive uh, my wife sent an email to the entire yeah. school, but uh yeah but it was uh was i the first case in the school okay we don't know there was one at the school like a block away so i and and that had run the rumor mill so people knew it was coming but it was me. <laughs> um, you know, I had to tell the office to my office. I have 40 employees, you know. That maybe didn't, according to your Facebook post, that was I was less maybe caused than, a little uh, bit of panic yeah, for people. I was less than smart about how I did that, mainly because I did it on Facebook. I, you know, I posted my frustration on Tuesday, which was the second day of my symptoms. I basically put a Facebook post up saying, how am I supposed to know what's going on right now? How am I supposed to know whether I should stay home or go to work? How do I know if this is the flu, if I can't get a test? And I was ranty about it, you know, on Facebook. And yeah. and, uh, yeah. and I was home. I was sequestering myself because when I did start to have symptoms, I immediately started saying home. But I put that post up. And then, of course, everybody at work said, well, wait, he was at work last week, you know. And there is a yeah. window. You know, if I got it from my wife on Thursday, I was definitely at work on Friday for at least six hours. And that's the window I could have given it to anyone at work if I, if anyone had gotten it, which to this point, I don't believe anyone has, but that's the window I could have done it. But people were uh, sensitive about it mainly because, you know, there's a couple of people there whose uh, significant others have respiratory problems or, or there's people there who's, you know, for whatever reason, they're, they're, they're sensitive about it. Yeah. And, uh, that was, uh, probably my biggest misstep was in that was the phase in which I was deciding that I probably didn't have the coronavirus because it felt like just the flu, you know? So I sent an email to the company saying, Hey guys, it could be coronavirus. I have no way of knowing, but I think it's just the flu, yada, 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 yada. And I really, I didn't have a diagnosis, uh, uh for another week. So yeah. the odds that I had gotten the coronavirus were so slim at that point. Like, it was like, where did I get it? How could it, you know, how could this have happened? Yeah. Nobody I knew had it. Nobody uh, I had come in contact with. I wasn't in an area of outbreak, even though I said I was a week later. But other than my wife or the flight back from California the week before that, you know, those are the places or any time in between. I mean, it could have been, you know, taking out the garbage. I don't know.
3: And Jody has not your wife has not been tested.
4: Has not. There's yeah. no way she didn't have it because she was, you know, living in the house with me with no mask on for three weeks. So that's how you get it is you're <laughs> in close proximity with somebody for, you know, a number of days or whatever.
3: Right. And you have two young kids and you were saying that the worst case there was a one day of fever and then some sniffles for the other one.
4: I think in general you'll find that the statistics say that the coronavirus affects children very little, if anything, they're right. carriers. They're not, yeah. which is a horrible. A label for the kids. <laughs> irony from God or whoever's, you know, yeah. running this show. Yeah. You know, those kids, uh, just just having the kids be little carriers and having the grandparents be the ones that can't be around them anymore is just sort of yeah. long. It's horrible. Yeah. You know, at the end of the time in the hospital, they sent me home in an ambulette. And it was a super banged up Ford Econo line type of van with side seats, you know, sitting along the, yes. the edges there. Sort of, you know, just really bare minimum seat belt going on. Right. It's like, it was like flying back in an army surplus carrier or something like that. But I got home and then, you know, I I was home three or four days and started writing that stuff up. And then uh, I want to say like two days ago, I felt normal. There's a distant pain when I breathe all the way in, there still has a little bit of that, but.
3: And today is your eighth day. You were supposed to self quarantine for seven days after you got home. And today's day eight.
4: Today would be day eight. Yeah. Today is actually technically day nine, I think. And they said seven to 10 days. So, because I I left the hospital on Sunday, midday. So seven days would have been midday yesterday.
3: Yeah. This
4: is the eighth day. Tomorrow will be the ninth. Wednesday, the 10th. Wednesday, the 10th, at which point I will treat myself the same as everybody else and stay home and wear a mask. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's the same thing. But I'll be, uh, at that point, there are two- silver linings one is that I'll I presume and some many people presume that I will be immune to it at least in the short term unless it mutates or it you know comes back in the fall cuz that's another distinct possibility um but uh you know if it's like the flu it kind of disappears in the summer Plus, I have, uh, there have been a couple of calls now from uh, different hospitals wanting survivors of the COVID 19 thing to show up and donate plasma because it's full of antibodies that don't exist in people's blood unless they've had the disease. So, so you're planning uh, to do that? Yeah. I mean, I'm on several lists at this point. I haven't gotten the call to come in, but yeah, probably
3: taking them a while to get organized, I imagine, especially there. There's, so, I mean, you guys are the hotspot. For the country, for sure, if not one of the hottest spots in the world right now.
4: Yeah, it's true. Although I think New Orleans per capita has surpassed us at this point. Oh, wow. They're, and I mean, you were they just only, there too. I was just there in January. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. been chasing the coronavirus all year, but I wasn't there for Mardi Gras. I was there before that. So they think that Mardi Gras was the time that it hit there and spread, which is why it's so uh, vast now yeah. is because you know, they, they got hit hard quick. They got the thing that people are trying to avoid with all this quarantining. Yeah. Because they basically had a giant sweaty party in the streets, like right in the middle of it. Yeah. And I love that town. It's my second home and I, I, I want them to be okay. <laughs> yeah. But uh they're not known for restraint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> well, um, I appreciate your coming on and, and telling us your story. What is your final message for people that You know, I don't know. I guess around here, I I do feel like, especially a lot of the senior citizens that I know, maybe aren't taking it seriously enough. And as are some other folks who are, they just seem to be like, uh, well, this isn't going to happen to me or I'm not. I see them just even today. I had to go to the bank. And while I'm driving around, there's just... Lots of people riding in work trucks together, sitting right next to each other, no kind of protective gear at all or working out. And, you know, they're all well within the six feet of each other as they're out Mm -hmm. doing their thing. So now that you're on the backside of all of this, how do you feel about all the warnings and messages that are coming out on the news and everything? And, And what do you think people should be doing? yourself, not to say that we're offering advice because we're not supposed to, I need to, there's all kinds of, please refer to
4: the disclaimer at the beginning of the show. We are not licensed physicians here or (laughs) or even scientists. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I guess my main message would be to be sensitive about the fact that no matter whether you get it or not, the odds are it's not going to be fatal for you if you get it. So the odds go significantly up the older you get. And that's the hard part is that you have to consider people other than yourself in your behavior. So you're not quarantining yourself because you need it. You're doing it because your grandparents need it because they don't need to come in contact with this because it is a sharp incline, the uh, death rate as you get older. And especially in your late sixties, early seventies and heaven forbid your eighties. I don't know what the percentages are, I know that at this point, it's in every state of the union. Uh, they say states reporting cases on the CDC website, 55, and there's only 50, aren't there?
1: Yeah. But there's
4: the others. Uh, there's the District of Columbia. There's Puerto Rico. There's Guam, Northern Marianas, and U.S. Virgin Islands. It's everywhere. It's in all those places. Yeah. And, you know, total cases, 140,000 at this point in time. Total deaths, 2,400. So that's less than 1%, I think, maybe, no, more, no, more. I'm not good at math, but that's the biggest thing to remember is that it's not about you and whether you get it or not. It's about whether, you know, somebody more frail than you gets it, if that's the way that you're thinking. And hey, if you've been smoking your whole life, there's no guarantee you could be 36 years old and this thing could get you, you yeah. know? It's really about your lungs and how good they are. Right, right and those hospital workers that have to deal with it no matter what because these guys aren't getting breaks. They're not even getting the right protective kind of stuff they need, and they are learning as they go, and it's a nightmare in some places. In some hospitals, it's been really bad, and uh there's some good hour-long chats with doctors uh, from Queens in that hospital up there where you know, they have a refrigerated truck sitting outside the hospital waiting for the corpses that they can't house in the hospital because they need the space. And uh, that's probably a worst case scenario, although we haven't seen the worst of it yet. So the quarantining yourself is really just trying to help. You know, you're not going to stop anything from happening that way other than you're not going to be the one that gives it to your grandfather. You know, that's all I would say is just, you know, listen to the experts because, They don't even know, really. The other thing is when it hits, it hits. So like New Orleans had no cases and then suddenly they had 4,800 cases. That would not have happened had they been quarantining. So that's why you quarantine.
3: All right, Drew, thank you so much for coming on the show, for spending the time to talk to our audience. I just felt like it was, upon hearing your story, I felt like it was an important
4: story that other people should hear. So I really appreciate your taking the time to tell it. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, I hope that uh, someone listening to it, if anything, takes it to heart and tries to do the right thing.
3: Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Next Christmas show. Okay.
4: Yeah. (laughs)
3: That's going to wrap up this special edition of Astonishing Legends. A heartfelt thanks to Andrew Sherman for sharing his story with us and our listeners. Also, a special thanks to Ellie Schwabel for giving us permission to share part of his story, too. If you've ever heard our show before, then you know this is not the sort of thing we usually cover, but we'll be back with more of that stuff on April 11th or 12th, just as soon as we can get it posted. Also, the second season of our other show, The Midnight Library, premieres on Sunday, april 5th
2: and we'll have 13 weekly episodes in a row so find and subscribe to that show if you haven't already please share this episode of astonishing legends with anyone that you think should hear it we see it as a public service announcement in this frightening time stay safe out there folks special thanks to john bolin our show is edited by sarah Voorhees wendell and co-produced by tess feifel who is also our head of research Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com, or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also
3: support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.
1: As a reminder, the Astonishing Legends podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. In the event of a medical emergency, call a doctor or 911 immediately. Reliance on any information heard on Astonishing Legends is solely at your own risk. Additionally, please remember that Astonishing Legends is an entertainment podcast and should not be regarded as a news source. The information shared is based on personal experiences and represents the independent stories and opinions of guests of the show and in no way constitutes advice of any kind, medical or otherwise. You will find numerous links on COVID 19 in the show notes associated with the webpage for this episode at astonishinglegends.com.
0: Your total wine and more store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today?